0: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This programme is the second half of the conversation I had last autumn with Polly Barton, a translator from Japanese and the author of a terrific memoir come reflection on language and translation called Fifty Sounds. In the first part, we talked about Polly's early fascination with Japan and language and her decision, age 21, to go and live and work on a remote Japanese island and her experience of learning the language there. In this part, we talk about her decision to become a translator, and some of the challenges that has presented, and also about her book. Fifty Sounds has fifty chapters, each of which takes a single Japanese word as its starting point. All of these words are so-called mimetics, a distinctive and richly expressive class of word in Japanese that merits its own chunky dictionary, but which in the English language we generally pay little attention to. They are the words that give colour and individuality to storytelling, the kind of words that convey the speaker's sense of being an embodied person in the world, alert to its texture and feel. In choosing to build a book around these words, Polly seems to get at the heart of Japanese, or, if that is too grand a claim, to capture the essence of what it meant to her to learn Japanese and to begin to glimpse the world through the lens of that language. But to take a step back, I'll let Polly begin by explaining a bit more about what mimetics are.
1: The easiest way to put it is it's basically onomatopoeic language, but kind of broadly understood. So the strict definition of onomatopoeia is a word that mimics the audible quality of something. So splash, for example, whereas mimetics or onomatopoeia, when it's given a a broader definition, the quality that it's imitating doesn't necessarily have to be an audible one. So, you know, in that definition, for example, a word like dash could be seen to be that, you know, there's, there's aspects to the sound of the word dash, which in some sense, give a sense to an English speaker of speed and haste and kind of quick, quick movement. And Japanese has a very large number of mimetic words. It's thought that it's second only to Korean in that respect. And also they are quite, much, much more so than in English, they take a very specific format and they're very clearly defined so that you can more or less separate the Japanese language into four different kinds of vocabulary and mimetics are often thought to be kind of their own separate category. And so they're used a lot in the Japanese language and one specific and maybe quite well-known form that a lot of them Take is is reiterative, so something like poka poka or kira-kira. Um, so it would be the same, it's essentially four syllables, but one section of two se- syllables then repeated. The book is structured, it's called 50 Sounds, and it's basically kind of an essay in 50 essays. And each of the 50 essays is based around one of these mimetic words.
0: And so naturally to you as someone who experiences language i mean we all do but you you're sensitive to the fact that we experience language in an embodied corporeal physical you know it's not it's not just a matter of what you would transcribe there's there's all sorts of resonances so this kind of mimetic language clearly made a strong appeal to you that's why you presumably chose to to structure the book around exploring them
1: yeah absolutely i think you know we we've spoken a little bit about me learning French and you know I learned French in a very sort of conventional textbook classroom way and the way that I learnt Japanese was totally different to that. I did study while I was there but it essentially it was all led by what was going on around me and I you know I think maybe most importantly for me it was like I didn't have a picture of what the language was or contained before I started to kind of pick it up and so I didn't know about these mimetics at all and then I sort of started to hear more and more of them and kind of just feel very curious about how they were being used and what their relationship was to one another. But, you know, no one had ever said to me, I'd never heard it said like, oh, this is a very fundamental part of the Japanese language. And so it was this real, like, yeah, voyage of discovery and kind of gradually piecing together the the truth about, or or, or some way to the truth about what they were and, and the kind of function they served. And, you know, to return to this amazing storytelling friend of mine, you know, several of the, the chapters in his book were inspired by him just because <sighs> there's just so much personality and expression and character that seems to hang on a lot of these words. And that, you know, that ultimately was sort of what I wanted to talk about, I suppose, with my learning Japanese, that it it was a way of connecting for me with people and a sort of lens through which to understand the people around me. And and yeah, the, the mimetic language is sort of, I don't know, naturally presented itself to me, I suppose, as like the best, the best way to, to access that.
0: And as well as the book being very thoughtful about language and our relationship to language, I should also say it's, it's, it's in places very funny and very entertaining. And one of the things which I enjoyed is we sort of see you encountering these expressions and trying to work out from context what they mean. And you sometimes get very close, and sometimes, sometimes you get it spot on. But sometimes, you know, for example, talking about your hair, for example, maybe you could maybe you could just give that as an example because that, that comes to my mind about how you how a, war, a certain word is used by the children, and then how you. Come to understand what it what it, what is its normal applicability is.
1: Yeah, so the you know there's a, a word, a sort of I, a context for this is that I have um, very curly hair, and um, there's a, a kind of standard word for curly hair, which is kuru kuru, and I kind of learned this as as uh, you know that was that was what my hair was. And, and and curly you know it can be applied to hair but all, all, all the other different things and it generally means sort of spirally I suppose but kind of the more that time went on in the school the more I came to realize that actually the kids were using another word to to refer to my hair which was very different and it, again remetic it was moja moja and I kind of would say, you know, what, what does that mean? And I, I didn't get an explanation and I probably put it in my electronic dictionary and, you know, it was too, too obscure to come up with a definition. So I sort of let it go. And then, (laughs) and then I, then I had a boyfriend who would also use the same words and it only like quite a while later, then cropped up again and in the context of sheep's wool and I, like, you know I think at this point I had access to more more dictionaries or whatever and kind of looked it up and found that it was you know used to describe kind of very coarse <laughs> fuzzy messy hair you know but and, and kind of thinking back to that you know th- those early things when i would sort of self describe as like oh my hair is you know kuru kuru and sort of be corrected and be told no 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 no, no it's moja moja. And, and you know and and i had no idea that i was receiving a highly backhanded <laughs> kind of compliment um yeah i i guess
0: i guess that relates to another theme of the book which is that you, that as a Westerner in Japan, you can both be a kind of celebrity and a curiosity at the same time, and something that is, or someone who is marked out as alien, as as not Japanese. Is that something that goes quite deep, would you say, in in your experience and other Westerner's experience of... Because I guess you're sort of trying—you're trying to engage with the Japanese language in order to engage with the Japanese people and, and Japanese culture—and then is this—is this a sort of a barrier? This sense of of otherness that is experienced.
1: I mean, in a word, yes. <laughs> I found it a barrier, and you know, I think throughout my time in Japan, I I felt this great sense of otherness and I mostly put it down to the linguistic barrier and sort of said you know and I think I I, I really well there were definitely you know I definitely reaped the benefits of it in in multiple ways I I didn't find it great a lot of the time and I, I I wanted to step away from it and I think for me you know there was just this thought of like well if I get good at Japanese then that will go away and I think it took me a really long time to realize that that wasn't the case I mean certainly aspects got easier but you know something something that I experienced quite a lot towards the end of my time in Japan was just, you know, being at a party or something and, and meeting someone Japanese and who was very very excited that I was not Japanese and sort of wanted to talk to me in English or or or, or wanted to talk to me in Japanese, but on you know it, very much in the sort of novelty, I was the novelty. Plain And, you know, when I was sort of visibly unimpressed by this and just sort of said, you know, well, I, I, I speak okay Japanese, like, can we just, you know, kind of refuse to play the game? It was like suddenly this huge gulf formed and and that the other person was like visibly much more awkward that now there was this much more hard to bridge gap because... I could speak Japanese but at the same time I'm not Japanese and and I think that that can be a difficult thing to navigate especially you know in a relatively homogenous society when one isn't used to kind of gauging how much people know and I think yeah I think that's a difficult a difficult calculation for a lot of people to make so I I think ultimately it it was that feeling that meant I I really didn't feel I could stay in Japan or that I wanted to stay in Japan and I think when I realised that it felt quite sad you know as a realisation and 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 that is not to say that Japanese society won't change in that regard. And it's not to say also that, you know, I might go back in a different situation and feel very differently. But I think at that particular point in my life, you know, I was single and I was working freelance and I was sort of, you know, it felt like I was very, (laughs) not dependent, but, The sort of minute social interactions that I would have in the supermarket or whatever were really, really important to me and actually to be treated with sort of apprehension and, yeah, and othered on a frequent basis was taking its toll. Each interaction was only a little drip, but I suppose, yeah, that that ultimately there was a drip-drip effect.
0: And you're, you're really fascinating, I think, on how different languages produce different manifestations of ourselves. They seem to invite or constrain us to behave in different ways. And in a European context, this is quite often trivialised as, oh, she's more effusive when she speaks Italian, or he's a bit more straight-laced when he speaks Swedish, or whatever. But, But... from the book, you experience it in quite, a, in quite a profound way as quite a troubling thing that the way Japanese almost sort of compelled you to behave produced a sense of division or tension or strain. Am I, am I characterising it
1: more or less correctly? Yeah. And, you know, obviously, I think I was drawn to Japanese culture for a reason. Right. I mean, I did, I did experience it as a kind of constraint, but I think a lot of people would have gone to Japan and just said like, oh, that's not for me. Whereas there was something, you know, it was this weird ambivalence with the constraint and, you know, I mean, something that (laughs) interests me as well, and and it's often said, and I am still sort of probing in my mind, the extent to which this is true is that, you know, as British people, we tend to have a more natural affinity with Japan than Americans, because of the kind of indirect communication and the layers of things that aren't said, and the kind of general kind of (laughs) embarrassment about expressing one's feelings and so on and so forth and you know i i feel uncomfortable saying all of this because they're just such gross generalizations and you know they they there's so much that they don't take into account but i think for me like one way to characterize the kind of ambivalence that i felt towards japan was like in one way this real um sense of comfort and security that came from like things being quite introspective and and you know, feelings being repressed or not expressed or you know and, and and things being subdued and and not loud whilst also the sense that that's not really what I what I needed on another level and I think yeah it made for an it made for an interesting <laughs> and sometimes quite revealing kind of journey to to try and you know pull apart all of those different all of those different things
0: Polly there's a wonderful line I don't know about two-thirds of the way through your book you say at some point I decided I would try to become a translator. And you say it in such a wonderfully matter-of-fact way. And <laughs> just, get you to, just to unpack that a tiny bit. Yeah. Did that come as a sort of, was it a light bulb moment? Was it a gradual dawning? Was it a tentative, I'll dip my toe in this water? How did you, you describe it, I think, a little bit further on as, as perhaps fate. And I think you use the same word when you talk about ending up in Japan in the first place. So, and then I think you say something clicked into place. So just tell, yeah. tell me about that click.
1: You know, it's interesting because I think that the decision to do it, to pursue it as a as a career was a, I don't know if it was a light bulb thing, but it was a relatively like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And it, you know, it was, I suppose, a sort of turning point. But I think, you know, at the point that I decided that was what I was going to do, I was al- already translating quite a lot as part of my job and just sort of. I was doing kind of a language exchange with someone and like my homework would be to to translate certain stories and I think I guess what I'm trying to say is you know the journey in from learning Japanese to reading and then to from reading to translation for me felt like a very organic one. You know for, for a very long time learning to read a Japanese book was the kind of the ultimate aim. And then once I Done that, it was kind of, a, well, what's the next step?" And, and just sort of transitioning towards translating seemed like the most yeah, the most ready-to-hand way of just kind of getting ever closer to, to the language, I suppose, and understanding more about it. And I think when I was first asked to do it professionally, even though at that stage, by rights I really shouldn't have been translating because I just was not good enough it was amazing to me that you know there was this thing that you could do where you were both writing in English and kind of studying Japanese and learning more about Japanese at the same time and it was like wow they, but these are the two things that I like doing the most and now I'm doing them both at the same time you know it felt quite kind of magic and I think yeah it was after I'd done that for a while and sort of seen that like actually maybe I was not bad at that, that then, then the thought came of like, OK, I'm going to give this a go and see, see what happens. And can you describe
0: your process when you're approaching a literary text as a translator and maybe are there things that you would highlight which might be different from someone who's translating from a European language that perhaps has more family resemblance to English? I'm intrigued by how you, how you set about it.
1: That's interesting. I've not thought about that before, if my process differs in any significant way from someone translating from French or Italian, for example. I tend to produce a very, very scrappy first draft that I would be really, really mortified to show anyone. And a lot of that feels like I mean there are bits, there are occasionally bits where I go slow, but I e more often it's it's sort of there's a lot about kind of replicating the sense of pace that I feel from the original. So I don't really do much research and I'll highlight bits that I need to research. And then the second draft, I mostly it's not that I don't look at the original text, but I am going much more with what is on the page so I kind of get it into some kind of order that makes sense to me in English plus doing bits of research that need that need doing and then I'll I'll do a third draft kind of looking back again at the original and and by that stage most things are kind of it's workable it's showable to people it's definitely not done but it's kind of in some kind of order I suppose
0: and as you get to that sort of final phase and get it down to just a few tough nuts to crack, do they fall into particular categories? Are there any or any examples you can think of, you know, as as you sort of solve things and work through things and find satisfactory ways of rendering things? Are there things that are maybe characteristic of Japanese that you find are those, you know, that, you know, we all have sort of three or four little really, you know, the ones that keep the yellow highlighter right till the end of the process. Do they fall into any particular pattern, would you say? Or are they just... I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is that are the things which Japanese makes especially hard to to crack?
1: Yes, the ones I find myself really, really having a tough time with often are kind of jokes or kind of... Humorous interchanges that revolve around the particular ways that characters look, so so like a something that is amazingly common is kind of name jokes or kind of puns that revolve around the specific visuals of a character, and I think I'm relatively okay with dealing with those when all that's being conveyed is the information. The difficulty I have is when it's also kind of, you know, fulfilling some kind of social function between people of, of endearing them to one another or showing something about them. And it's it's very hard to do that in a way in English that doesn't feel laboured. And, you know, and and ultimately it comes down often to this very stark domesticizing versus foreignizing choice of like do I just translate this into something totally different you know a different a a pun that works in English and you know or do I instead kind of forsake the humor and keep the fact that these people are riffing off this visual element of language that we don't have in English and which is interesting and important and I don't I don't have a fixed policy you know I think there's just it's just a kind of got to judge case by case. I recently translated a book called There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Tsumura and it's about a woman who does five different jobs in the space of a year and in the middle job the third job she has a job writing trivia for the backs of rice cracker packets. Um and there's different kinds of trivia and there's a lot of so there's a lot of jokes and puns and things often involving characters and kind of explanations of Japanese words and I mean the nice thing about that was that it was so clearly set in Japan and that we weren't pretending that it wasn't, that we could actually kind of include these explanations of different characters. In people's names and you know actually show that like Bloomsbury were okay with us actually printing the Japanese character so that was kind of nice to do but even then there's this judgment call of like how much information do you include you can't just translate what's in the Japanese so it's yeah it is it's about balance I think ultimately you know learning to see the whole picture of all the different elements that you are balancing in that equation I think has taken me a long time well I mean I'm still not there but but you know I think my understanding is continually broadening of like all the different concerns that you have to be aware of when you're when you're making those kinds of judgment calls I suppose.
0: In conclusion Polly maybe I could just ask you for your general sort of sense of the picture we get of Japanese literature in translation in English today I mean do you do you feel we're getting a A broad sample of what's going on? Or is there still a lot of work to do in order to to bring more Japanese authors into English?
1: I think it is definitely broadening. You know, until a few years ago, when I spoke to publishers, the question was always, can you give us the next Murakami? And that is no longer the case. As a caveat, I would say we have moved slightly towards a, can you give us the next convenience store, woman? That is something that that pains me, not just about the publishing of, of Japanese literature specifically, but, you know, the publishing of world literature is that it tends to work along the ideas of, of successful models, right? So one particular, you know, you have the vegetarian or you have convenience store woman that does very well in some way and then people sort of are looking for the next version of that and I wish that things weren't like that but at the same time you know convenience store woman is written by a, a, a woman it's broadly thought to be feminist and so what that means is that publishers are far more amenable to publishing feminist work by women and so we've you know we've seen in in the past few years the publication of some really exciting books by Japanese women that I don't personally think are particularly like convenience store women were probably published because someone somewhere thought that they were like convenience store women but a lot of people have benefited from nonetheless I think the Japanese literature market has more diversity than we see in translation. Um, And so I suppose what I would really like is to see more publishers taking bigger risks with books that are slightly more left field in in various ways, Um, but particularly in terms of you know, length and structure and and so on and so forth. You know, I think in the West we can be quite tied to our particular categories of and and, and senses of you know what what structure a, a novel should have and what structure an, an essay should have and, and so on and so forth. And I think pushing the envelope on that could lead to some really exciting results. And I think, you know, in terms of readers, often readers are much more open to these things than publishers assume they are. And, and, and actually, it, it just takes sort of those brave publishing decisions to kind of lead the way. And then, and then, yeah, often readers are really amenable to following. So I'd like to see more of that.
0: I was talking to Polly Barton. Polly's book, 50 Sounds, is available in paperback from Fitzcarraldo. More information on the Fitzcarraldo Editions website. And there's more about Polly and her work on her website, pollybarton.net. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 80 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify and elsewhere. And catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.